You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So what do you approach in your approach shoes? El Cap, the Diamond, the Traps? How about Supercrack Buttress or the Mushroom Boulder in Waco? And what about your mailbox, your job, the local coffee shop? Have you ever approached something scary, awe-inspiring, or heartbreaking in your approach shoes? And what is your actual approach like? Do you stomp, dance, or electric slide your approaches? Or do you walk in beauty like the night of cloudless climbs and starry skies? Climbers do everything from wide cracks to wedding vows in their approach shoes. Not to mention hike, scramble, and lead those last few pitches in the dark. So why not get an approach shoe that can handle it all and look great doing it, like the TX4 from Sportiva. The mighty TX4 approach shoe sports a sticky sole, leather upper, bomber rand, and unbeatable build, as we'd expect from Sportiva. So whether you're bombing up some trail to paradise in the pre-dawn light, or just kicking around town feeling the afterglow, why not approach everything with style in the TX4 from Sportiva? Check out the whole TX line at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it that out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Check, check. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It's about 1030 on October 14th, 2019. And this is episode 185 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Hobo Greg. Who is Hobo Greg? Well, he is a man who climbs in Joshua Tree. And frankly, I don't know too much more about him. Even after doing this interview, I don't actually know his name. I realized when I was starting to get this thing together. Now, I'm sure I could ferret it out somewhere, but um, I, I, I started to and then I stopped. He introduced himself to me as Hobo Greg. All of our correspondence has been under the moniker Hobo Greg. And uh, let's just leave it at that. The man, the myth, the legend of Hobo Greg. Are you intrigued yet? You should be. I wasn't at first, but once I was put under Hobo Greg's spell, then then I got a lot more interested. And uh, we talk in the interview about how this interview came about, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I get quite a few requests to talk to the every person. Of course, a lot of people use every man, but we're, we're beyond that nowadays. Every person, the, the kind of average bloke or lass out there climbing. And, uh, you know, I kind of don't see much of an angle in it, actually. And what I mean by an angle is just, you know, what's the story there? I need, I need a little bit of a story. You know, 
A couple of years ago, I talked to Buddy Nielsen of the band Senses Fail, and Buddy was definitely an everyman type climber. That's that's what he said. He he also climbed in Josh Tree, which is coincidental because that's Hobo Greg's main stomping grounds, and uh, loved sort of easy trad climbing, as does Hobo Greg. But he had an angle. He's a he's a lead singer of a rock band, a touring rock band with albums and hits and all that sort of thing. So so there was an angle there. And uh, I don't know what the angle is with Hobo Greg. He just kind of showed up and we got this one done and actually turned out to be really fascinating and interesting. And if anything, we kind of got into what, if any, blueprint there is for, for doing what he did. And what he did was kind of walk away from a former life, pretty late in life, around 28, and kind of upend everything and and move out to the coast and become a climber out of the blue. And speaking of emails and things that I get, I I hear a lot about that, people kind of wondering, well, how it's done. I I live in this place. There is no climbing. I want to be a climber. What do I do? And I, I don't always have much of an answer for them because it's too late in my life to really understand what it takes these days to do something like that. I had an easy path to it going off to college and learning how to climb and you know this big pivotal moment in your life where you have a lot of choices to make. But they're, you know, it's easier to make them at those times. And so, yeah, I don't always have an answer. I don't know if we have any answers in here, but here's a guy who did it. He definitely walked away from a different life and uh, turned it into a climbing life. And that's the the meat of the Hobo Greg story. And frankly, I admire people who do that. It was Joseph Campbell who said, we must let go of the life we have planned so we can accept the one that is waiting for us. But it takes courage to do that. It takes bravery to cross the threshold to adventure. Do you know Joseph Campbell? The hero with a thousand faces? We should do a whole show on that sometime. I got a lot of opinions about how climbing fits into Joseph Campbell's hero journey. You liberal arts people, come on. And if you want to find out more about Hobo Greg, he does have a website, hobogreg.com. Do mythical creatures have websites? Apparently they do. Okay, why don't we let Hobo Greg weave his spell upon us? And we'll talk about Joseph Campbell another time. When you think about it, is there another gear company so dedicated to outfitting climbers from head to toe as Black Diamond? They've got lightweight modern helmets and headlamps for your pointy head, high-performance apparel to wrap that sweet climber bod you've been cultivating, all the way down to their line of advanced climbing shoes for those tender piggies. They've got crash pads for the pad sniffers, the best protection money can buy for the trad dads, ice tools for the masochists. Pitons, haul bags, portal ledges, backpacks, draws, beaners, harnesses, tents, probes, skis, poles, and even the signature Enormacast rhinestone-studded unisex microfleece G-string. Well, no, that doesn't exist yet, despite me stuffing the suggestion box every chance I get. So next time you're shopping for, well, nearly anything a climber could want, honor the generations of weary Black Diamond engineers pouring over AutoCAD in their cubicles when they'd much rather be climbing. And go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop to see the fruits of their dedicated labor. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Cast. 
just to preface this thing, what was it like a year ago, maybe? Yeah, about that. I suddenly started getting an uh, onslaught of requests <laughs> for somebody named Hobo Greg. And, uh, you know, I get a lot of requests and, and, I, and I appreciate them. And I don't want to tur- shut anybody down um, because, again, and I've said this elsewhere, like, you know, the off-piste, you know, random interview has often like been a real nice surprise and a, and a, like a bonus. And, mm-hmm. and, um, so, you know, the, the sponsored athlete, sometimes great, sometimes you yawn. Oh, you climb really well. Cause you climb all the time. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm totally open to suggestions, but it was funny because there was after a few, I was like, okay, somebody's trolling me right now. Like all these supposedly, you know, seemingly like random and, and uncoordinated people suddenly <laughs> hitting me. Yeah, up. I may have walked around Hidden Valley Campground and asked fellow dirtbags for a little helping hand to get on here. So those were just random people that were like, okay, I'll do it. Or those were, were mostly bros? my friends, but okay, some good. of them were just random folks in the space station of, you know, drinking a beer. Like, hey, have you heard of the Enormous Cast? Right. Well, you want to do me a favor and send an email? Right. So anyway, here you are. A year later, um, you managed to get to Colorado, yeah. which actually is another thing i'm i'm often saying but i'm i'm not making it up is that it's sometimes hard to get guys who are based guys and girls who are based in california and and, um on the show because they never leave why would we leave california i know it doesn't make sense best granite and best weather in the country right and now i'm here right right? it's okay colorado is pretty cool right on well thank you i know they just um honald just had something from the trade show where he just like Spent 15 minutes slamming yeah. Colorado climbing. So it was pretty entertaining, I thought. It's and fine. Mostly at, accurate. At this point, we're happy to like have everybody have the impression that this place sucks. That's true. Yeah. Tell go them to, go go to California. Yeah. Everybody go to California. You guys can have. Keep going west. Keep going west. There's no lines in Yosemite. It's completely, <laughs> it's completely empty of climbers. Keep on keeping on. So, um, no, I, I get it. Like I climbed in California. I lived in Southern California. Um, yeah, it's amazing, you know. But you know, it's like the Colorado scene is is also it has it. It just pure quality and and uh, proliferation of climbing, maybe less, you know, because we're up against Yosemite. But um, I think we have much more variety. And, and yeah, if, and if we were to certainly add, more limestone. Right. And I've been, you know, for years, I've been trying to get um, some sort of either military coup or just like a a nonviolent takeover of, you know, the southeast corner of of Utah and bring it into Colorado. I would support that. Or maybe just cut a line straight down the front of the Wasatch yeah. all the way down and we and we'd basically we get the eastern side. Yeah. And I think yeah. most of those people would be happier as yeah. Coloradoans. Um but maybe not. Leave Salt Lake Leave, you know, you guys can have St. George. They can have maple those, and all yeah, that. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff. But. We just want the Red Rock country. Well, there's also a great bumper sticker, you know, the free Tibet bumper sticker. Yeah. Well, there's a great one. I think a guy here in the Valley made it, but it says free Moab and it's a, <laughs> and it's a Colorado plate yeah. is the background. Um, anyhow, so there you go, Moab climbers. Just uh, just a little diss from, from Colorado. For um, anyhow, so back to you uh, coming on the show. Why, why is it that you woke up one morning and was like, I need to do the Enorma cast? Well, like most younger climbers, I think getting into this program has helped me on those long road trips in between the climbing destinations. 
And I think like a lot of other people at first, I'm like, man, this guy talks about himself more than I talk about myself. But <laughs> it grew on me pretty quick. And it got to the point where I really looked forward bi-monthly to these episodes coming out and uh-huh. giving me a glimpse into the world of some pro climbers, some who are maybe not pro, but definitely have been around the scene for a long time. Uh, and just thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be hilarious? Wouldn't I catch so much flack from my friends if I got on the EnormaCast? <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like a minor internet, maybe not internet celebrity, but a minor celebrity in the climbing world. Like I said, I'll show up pretty much any crag I go to and there's someone there who's, oh, I've heard about you. Right. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah, it just kind of dawned on me one day that if I quote crowdsource my way onto the EnormaCast... And I think we could pull this off. All right. Well, let me talk to you about my perspective because a lot of times I get suggestions and they're good, you know, but either they fall by the wayside or, you know, I just don't get around to it. The face to face thing's always tricky. You know, people are giving me suggestions and I'm like, yeah, when I get there, I'll look them up. Or, you know, I say, you know, let them to let me know if you're coming my way or whatever. Um, But, what did interest me about about sort of the the legend of Hobo Greg, <laughs> which is it's sort of out there a little bit, but um, I wanted to talk to someone who, you know, is like centering cli- their life around climbing and around being on the road, um, because we're we're in this like crazy period of van life, and and you know, there's kind of like both this reverence for the dirt bag, but also this constant dissing of it. Yeah. You know, it's does like, it even exist? Does it even exist? Or, Oh, they're just like privileged kids, who, yeah. you know, who are pretending for a little while and all that sort of thing. So here you are to talk about it. So tell me about, um, you know, tell me about your life, what it looks like in terms of climbing, in terms of, um, yeah, just in terms of what it is you do to again, like become this bit of this legend. That's, yeah. Again, California kind of West Coast based a little yeah. bit more than here in Colorado, but you're definitely out there. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've also climbed in the Northeast as well, where I grew up. I, I was born in New York City and uh-huh. lived there until I was 12, New Jersey until I was 25. No outdoor influence in my life besides Boy Scouts. I didn't even know that rock climbing was a thing until in my 20s, probably. Got into scrambling a little bit in the mountains, doing some third and fourth class stuff. And then got into a little more alternative outdoor lifestyle, doing trail work um, in Montana and in New York. And through that, got into hitchhiking. And that felt like a really cool, adventurous way to explore, um, kind of following that like Alexander Supertramp into the wild mold. I even right. visited some of the places like Slab City uh, that he went to. And I thought I would find my community in that world, but I really just found a bunch of like, train hopping kids or doing a lot of drugs and not really going anywhere with their lives. But it was through hitchhiking that I found climbing. I hitchhiked in a Joshua tree in February, 2015 and walked up to these dudes in a parking lot. They were smoking some weed. And I'm like, Hey, you guys look like friends. I haven't met yet. And they took me climbing. It was uh-huh. like that easy. And I just will never forget that feeling of, you know, it's just a single pitch climb that we did. Nothing crazy. I did it in hiking shoes, but the feeling of getting to the top and, all the colors were brighter. The smells were more vibrant. Like everything just felt different from that moment on. And that's, you know, over four years ago. And I've just immersed myself in that. And climbing came into my life at a very peculiar time that did this hitchhiking trip, started 
you know, following and then even leading within about a month because mm-hmm. the, the old guys are like, we're tired of putting up the route for you. Here's the rack. Go right. do it. And then I hitchhiked back to New Jersey at the end of that trip. And then about a month later, my dad died. And I was oh, like, wow. pretty unexpected. He was just walking across the road and got blasted by a truck. Uh, Holy cow. And me and him were really close. I'm, that's terrible. He would definitely be cool with going out that way rather than cancer right. or something else. But yeah. Wow. As soon as he died, the thought in my head was, I'm going back to Joshua Tree. Like, that's where I'm going to recover and heal. And so once we took care of everything, that's where I went. And I have left Joshua Tree since then, but not for very long, right. apparently. I've spent probably two years total out of the last four and a half in Joshua Tree. Okay. Um, so, yeah, climbing came into my life like a really important time, I would say. Right. Like, as soon as he died, I really just threw myself into it and went through the motions of like following, leading, soloing decking, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which we can talk about. Uh, I'm sure all my friends are going to be laughing about that one. You might be, an, are you another Red Point soloist? You no, know, it's funny. I, I, the joke is out there that if I go for it, I'll be the world's second all right. Red Point free soloist. Back, after, you haven't, you after haven't after James Lucas. Okay, well. It's funny too, because it happened across the road. Like, you know, he fell North Overhang on right. intersection rock and I fell from the Space Station Direct, which is like line of sight. You can see those those two things. So, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. What's the space space station direct? It's just a it's way not to in the go, book. go yeah, straight it's, up it's, there. You, yeah, directly okay. up. Uh, right. The Italians would say directissima. Right. Uh, and just overconfident that day, I guess, and kind of just hucked it off and fell about twenty feet and dislocated my elbow. Ooh, that's it. Luckily, that yeah. was it. Yeah. I mean, I've almost done that in the climbing gyms. So right. I know people who have taken safer. way smaller falls and right. gotten way more jacked right. up. So I got super lucky. Um, and also it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me as a climber though, because it really showed me that back it up a little consequences. Right. Right. You know, I think I, because I was in that state, like this happened less than a year after my dad died. So I was in that state of, you know, just going for it, not caring about a consequence of anything. Um, yeah. And wound up hitting the ground. Right. Well, let me back up. Um, we, (laughs) Been waiting to do that for a long time. <laughs> yeah, we don't do it as much as we used to. Um, uh, the drinking actually has been uh, the heavy drinking on the podcast has actually been taken over a little bit more by the runout. Um, <laughs> but we have a tendency on there to be whiskey people, which goes faster into the into the crap yeah. as far as the conversation goes. But anyway, figured I'd keep um, it mellow. With there's the a lot day. more. Yeah, at, at whatever time of the morning it is right now. But um, yeah, we get a lot more clinking of the of the ice over there. But. Um, let me back up a little bit because I was just having a conversation literally this morning with my girlfriend, Steph, and kind of talking about, uh, you know, the, the archetype of how people get into climbing more so in the past. You know, I've had so many guests on here who were, you know, this, some little thing came into their life and they found a book and then, and it was just, and I kept saying that they were weird kids. They, they like needed this thing, and and they also had sort of the courage, in a lot of ways, because if you're if you're a kid, a middle school or high schooler, like to go on a different path from all your peers is is tricky. You know, mm-hmm. it's like volumes have been written about it. And then now we have the climbing gym, but part of me tends to disregard that a little bit because in, in, until the, the person is on their own and makes their own choice. And so much of the climbing gym for kids is just like any other sport. Like yeah. Mom and dad get me up and make me go. The coach makes me go, you know? And so when you're on your own and you're in college or are you going to, is, is climbing enough to still be something that you want to do? Or was it actually fulfilling a need that, 
you no longer have, so to speak. Anyway, so I want to go back a little bit with all that preface <laughs> and talk about who you were that you ended up coming out of this suburban or not suburban city life and suburban life. It sounds like maybe yeah. to want to like suddenly leave town and hitchhike somewhere. Yeah. And we're talking about, this is just a few years ago. Yeah. It's like so, four, yeah. four and a half years. So we're ago. talking about a time where I think very few people look at hitchhiking as a way to get around the way, right. the way they did like 40 years ago yeah. in most of the country. There's, I didn't see too many other people. Right. Out there There's still a few bastions. I think yeah. rural parts or where, you know, hitchhiking is something that you do, but even, you know, I did it in New Zealand 30 years ago, and I don't know if, or 25 years ago, and I don't know if they do it there even anymore. It's still so. pretty common there. Right, right. right. Um, it's, so yeah, anyway, it's not common here. Yeah, so here's this person. Where where were you that, aside, I mean, because you, you did that before your father died. Yeah. What, what, was, the, what yeah. was the impetus to become, I mean, you know, this person that, like, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Angela Van Wiemersch's story. Yeah, I, it's, right. it's funny you should say that because yeah. I remember listening to that episode and being like, whoa, best yeah, you, friends. Yeah, you could have met her out there. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, I just remember being a kid and, and seeing trains go by and like, I'm like six and I was like, oh, I could jump on a train. Um, and so as I oh, got... shit. My kid loves trains yeah. and he's three. Like, that's all he talks about. Be on the lookout. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I think as I got older, like after, you know, skateboarded was like my first love in middle school and high school. And then after high school, didn't really fit in the college molds, odd jobs, whatever I can do to kind of get by as well as pursuing photography, which is still huge in my life. I just wanted more adventure. Like I would read a book like Into the Wild and want to go live that sort of adventure. And so I finally did. Like when I started doing trail crew, uh, I started hitchhiking just a little bit here and there. And then doing like bigger trips from Sacramento to Billings, Montana was like my first long hitchhiking trip and kind of taught me a lot of how to navigate that world. And then I thought, man, it'd be cool to do like a really, really big trip. And so from Texas to Joshua Tree and then back was like 3,000 miles of hitching. Um, It just always something in me just has that wanderlust. You know, I'm sure that a lot of people listening right now have that same feeling of you spend too much time in one place and you just start going crazy. You want to check mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. out, you know, always looking for that novelty. Right. Yeah. But not everybody does it. So it takes like some moment of, of, you know, again, uh, uh, courage is a little bit of the wrong word because that implies some sort of heroism, but mm-hmm. you know, there's a bravery to it to just walk away from the easy, the, the set, the, yeah. the job you had or the, yeah. you know, the social circle you had or whatever. I mean, that's kind of really that's that's the thing like that most of us at certain times in our lives we wish we could but we decide not to right um and maybe it's for the better who knows <laughs> you know it's not always the best idea if you'd gone out there and gotten knife we all be talking about what a fucking, what a fucking idiot you are yeah, or whatever totally. you know or something but but it happened to work out for you yeah didn't john waters just do some big hitchhiking thing like yeah he wrote a cool book about it right. he went like from I think he went from San Francisco East or it might have been the other way around. But right, yeah. Right, yeah. I can't even imagine picking up John Waters. I know. It'd be hilarious. It'd be the best, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, so talk, let's you know delve in just a little bit to this adventure. This, yeah. I know this is a climbing podcast, but here you are like doing a 3,000-mile hitchhike. Like, tell me a story. Like, yeah. What, what, the mean, impetus to do that was I, I when I did trail crew, was with AmeriCorps. Since I didn't go to college, I didn't have any student loans or anything to use the AmeriCorps scholarship on. So I took a Leave No Trace Master Educator course with Knowles and it happened to be in Saguaro National Park in Arizona. 
And I was like, well, I could just like take a bus or fly, but that doesn't sound as fun. So I took a bus down to Texas because this was in January. I didn't want to hitch from New Jersey to start off in the winter. So I took a bus to Texas and then thumbed it from there to Saguaro. Took the course. Leaving. Taking a bus that far is its own adventure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you've ever taken Greyhound, you know it's like, in my opinion, Greyhound doesn't care if you live or die. Right. Like, I've seen some really great, like, dude with slices all over his neck, like, oozing pus and stuff. He got yeah. kicked off the bus and then somehow through like the Greyhound time warp, he was on the bus three states later again. No idea how he caught up. There's all <laughs> kinds of goofy stuff. Yeah, if you've ever taken Greyhound cross country, right. you know. Well, my, my friends, my European buddy, Joseba, who's a Spanish climber, dirtbag of all dirtbags, <laughs> he always takes it here too. And But, you know, he's he's like used to a European version of taking the bus. So every time nicer. he does it, he's just like, whoa, like this yeah. is pretty, but he, he likes it in that way of, you know, seeing like true, you know, bottom of the barrel America. Yeah. Through for a sure. bus. Anyway, back to your story. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So leaving Saguaro got a ride, uh, to Joshua tree and hitchhiked in. And like I said, just met these guys and they, they just, you know, the thing I learned about the climbing community right away was how welcoming and open it is. If you have a good attitude and a smile and maybe a beer or something, you're, you're in, right. you know, cause I, I owe all of where I am now. Like my, even my job as a guide, I owe all of that to the people who started me on that path, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe saw a little spark in me. Um, they wanted to, you know, got a free harness from this guy, got a pair of shoes for eight bucks from that guy and just kind of pieced it together as I went. You know? Right. Right. And then you, you were in Joshua Tree for a bit and then went all the way back home. Yeah, hitchhike. Like, I didn't know where that hitchhiking trip was going to go. It was very open-ended. But once I started climbing, it just felt like this is everything I've been waiting for in my life. Because I'd been backpacking. I'd been, like I said, doing some like third and fourth class stuff. And you know, my genesis story in climbing is probably a little more old school for someone who's 32 right. to have gotten into it with trad on day one, right. like not even top roping, like, you know, pulling gear out and learning how to do a rope backpack at the top. And, right. You know, so it's, it's pretty, I, I think I did my first sport climbing like this year, basically Okay, <laughs> at Smith. So, so four um, years in and I finally start sport climbing. Yeah. So what kind of people, uh, like pick up a hitchhiker these days? You know, it's funny. Uh, People always think like getting into a car with a stranger is really dangerous. That always felt like the most relaxed portion of hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, I can kind of let my guard down a little bit and just like recover. Cause being out on the road and meeting those, like nobody really hitchhikes for fun in this country, it seems like. So it's like the people you meet hitchhiking are doing it because they don't really have any other options. And it's kind of spooky at times. And then just where do you sleep at night? Like right. I've done things from like, you know, those little prefab sheds that you'll see in front of a Home Depot. I saw one of those at a truck stop once and was like, hey, that looks better than sleeping in a ditch tonight. So I just let myself in, uh, slept on the back lawn of Lyndon Johnson's Texas White House in Johnsonville, Texas. That uh-huh. was a fun one. I think it's cool to have to be creative. Um, but yeah, like you said, uh, who picks me up? It's everyone, mostly poor people, mostly mm-hmm. like lower and middle class, but all different ethnicities, all different walks of life. I've gotten rides from off-duty cops, school teachers, farmers. Uh, never really got like any finance investment type folks stopping. Right. The the, the uh, Tesla never slowed Tesla, down. Tesla, <laughs> no. General rule of thumb, the more beater the car, the more likely they are to stop. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's like a commiseration thing. Of, like, Could be. This yeah. guy, you know, I've been here. This guy yeah. needs some help or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you get, um, did you get any truckers? 
I had one truck in like a Seminole, Texas pullover, right, and he right. was going like 70. So by the time he stopped, I had to run like quarter mile to catch up with him. And we only got like, like 20 miles down the road before his truck broke down. Oh, man. I slept outside of a church that night because okay. those are usually pretty safe. Right. Uh, but yeah, truckers are not. I don't know. I, I think, think there's a lot of. Po- I think nowadays there's yeah. a lot of policy against it. So yeah. It has for to sure. be an independent guy. Yeah. And then, and then you know, it's like time is money, you know? That's in that. Yeah. It's a cutthroat business where time is money. So, like, dealing with some some person on the side of the road is probably pretty tricky yeah. in terms of like cutting into your bottom line, too. So, for sure. It was mostly great times. Like, I never had a negative experience with another person. I think there was a moment where, towards the end of that trip, I'd already paid for my bus ticket back to New Jersey, had a job waiting for me. I was pretty broke, I had like six bucks left, I think. And I'm in uh, Big Bend National Park. Uh, and they basically just kicked me out. For hitchhiking. And I've hitchhiked in all kinds of national parks. Rangers are just like right. smile and wave. But right. for whatever reason, maybe because it's the border. Yeah. They looked at me like problems. I was insane and a criminal. Mm-hmm. And the way they talked to me was just like, I've never really been hassled by cops much hitchhiking. So this was just, it was a really hard experience getting kicked out, having no money, no cell phone, no one to call, even if I had a cell phone. I remember like breaking down and crying on the side of the road, just feeling like so incredibly lonely, like 2,500 miles from home. But you know, it's, I think it's those kind of type two moments, just like in climbing, that in the moment sucks, but for the rest of your life, you're like, wow, that was an incredible experience. So it, you, you weren't even running a cell phone? At the time, no. Yeah. Okay. No, it was like old school paper maps. Right. You know, I had a, I, not an iPhone, what do you call it? An iPod, I guess. So I took some pictures with that. Right. But it wasn't a phone. Like I couldn't look things up. You know, yeah. Just, what were those things called? The pre-phone iPod, things. Right? Yeah. Well, it was like a... Yeah, they lasted. They were like in between the like just the straight up music iPod and the phone because it had apps on it. And stuff. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So you had had so, but you had no like communication. No. In terms no, it was of that. just totally figuring it out as I went. You mm-hmm. know, and like I said, being creative, especially about where you sleep. That's kind of the biggest crux of it. Is right. You know, I'm not going to pay for a hotel every night. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sleep in a homeless shelter. So just got to be creative out there. Right. So when you left town on this, this sort of thing, your dad's still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume you had a peer group in New Jersey. Um, I mean, maybe. There you... was like one or two people right. that I got along with there. And that's the thing. Like when you live in a place like New Jersey and you're into the outdoors, right. there's just not a lot for you there. I think, right. you know, anyone who's listening, if you live in New Jersey, get out. It gets better if you just keep going west, keep right, going. Right, right, um, Or just go somewhere that there's a little bit more of open-mindedness. Like, you know, I grew up in New York City, which is the biggest city in this country, but I feel like I grew up in a place that was as close-minded as any small town in terms of like, I grew up in an Italian community. Like, the Italians lived on this block and the Puerto Ricans on this block and the Irish over here and like, everyone just stayed in their own little world and everyone was kind of like... It's pretty close-minded overall. It's kind mm-hmm. of surprising that right? mm-hmm. you can find that even within the depths of a big city. Yeah. Talk about a little bit about the evolution from there. You're, you go back to Joshua Tree after your dad is killed. Yeah. Um, and what is there other family still in New Jersey? In terms uh, of- not in New Jersey, or but uh, they, uh, like my mom and my sister and okay. my nephew still live in New York. Oh, okay. And- have to make that pilgrimage once a year to see him. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, see, yeah, there's not a lot for me there. Right. It's like, like people ask me, don't you miss it? I'm like, no, I hope New York sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Like the turd <laughs> that it is. I miss bagels and pizza. That's it. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Like a, as far as a peer group, like there's only a few people right. back there that I identify with. Mm-hmm. And 
You know, it's, I found my peer group in climbing. Like, I think that was a big part of climbing for me was that it's not just this isolated activity. Like skateboarding for me was just always by myself for whatever the reason. That's just how it was climbing by nature of, you know, needing a partner. I think it's really beautiful that you find this community of people that they're not identical to you, but they're, you know, most of the people you meet are going to be very like-minded to you. And it's really cool having, like I said, having grown up in a place where I didn't know anything about that. Didn't like, I really didn't even know what climbing was until my twenties. Probably saw Honold on 60 minutes and that was like, Oh, rock climbing. Okay. Um, so finding that community of people in Joshua tree, especially when I found it was, was really important to me. Like I said, coming there after my dad had, had died, going, not just immersing myself in the act of climbing, but immersing myself in that community and doing like the Dutch oven dinners every night with everyone. And like, night solos with the friends and you know everyone going through the chasm of doom and naked running around the campground all those kind of shenanigans that i'm sure you've been a part of in in your time as well right i did spend a bit of time in joshua tree uh, a long long time ago at this point though so you got back to joshua tree you know what was next did you have an idea of what was going to happen out there Um, or were you just like i'm on the wind yeah. Uh, I need I need to be in this place. But what was the next step then? Yeah, I mean, like you just said, it was just floating on the wind. Uh, I definitely didn't think that I would, you know, get to the point of doing what I'm doing now, where like I climb not mountaineering, but I climb technical rock in the mountains, which is like my favorite thing. Going mm-hmm. on like a backpacking trip and then climbing, or just doing like a big day in the mountains. That was way out of the horizon at the time. I just knew that. Like when I got back to Joshua Tree that second season, I'd probably led four pitches in my life, a couple mm-hmm, in the gunks, mm-hmm. a couple in, in Joshua Tree the season before. So my main focus was to continue learning how to lead, uh, mostly through finding other rookies and going out and getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mentorship, I think a lot of people spoke have spoken about this, that mentorship seems to maybe have kind of gone out the window nowadays. Maybe it's just because there's so many people getting into climbing. Um, that, that's my theory. Yeah, is like the 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 sort of mentorship regime is overwhelmed. Yeah, you know, it was kind of like mostly replacement. You know, sort of like population in a way. Yeah. Like <laughs> mentors. You know, there was one for every two or three climbers coming into the. Now it's like one for every ten. Yeah, yeah. it feels like it's just too much. You know? Yeah, and, and I um, there there was people that helped yeah. me out along the way, but right. just like here's a little piece of info, here's right. a little piece of info. But I didn't find that like one or two or three people that would take me out and really show me what was up. So luckily I learned without making too tragic of mistakes, never dropped anyone, never been dropped, anything like that. But definitely placed some gear that would not have held. Right. Definitely ran it out when I maybe should have backed off, things like that. But you know, I think that's part of the learning process. And it's, it's cool to think I'm not, I'm not a hard man like Walter Bernati or someone like that. But when I read about Walter and oh yeah, we just took the rope out of our parents' garage and went climbing. Yeah, It's like, that's a little more my story than like, oh yeah, I went to a gym and then I was on the comp team mm-hmm. and then this mm-hmm. and then that. So. Well, the the I mean, you mentioned how like your intro to it was old school. Yeah. And, and I think we've gone through this too on the show because yeah, there's been a change and, and it's mostly the gyms. Mm-hmm. And I think the big change though from the gyms is is that you uh, you arrive at the rock if if you've learned to climb in a gym and then all of a sudden you're going to go outside with a certain with a certain amount of physical ability mm-hmm. that's that's beyond like a little ways of beyond where it should be in terms of what you ought to be trying outside mm-hmm. where the consequences are much higher and and those two things in your case and in, in in the pre-gym era 
kind of went hand in hand. You know, you couldn't climb any harder than five seven, even if you were pretty athletic <laughs> for your first route. Yeah. You know, and so if you if you did for some reason start leading immediately, the likelihood of you actually falling off were were pretty low. Right. But now it's like, yeah, you can arrive there having, you know, done the five twelve in the gym and then just be like, Well, I'll dial it back a little bit and try this five eleven. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. Things, you know, are about to go haywire. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of placing gear that wouldn't have held, that was fine because you didn't fall on it. Right. Yeah. And that's I, I always say that. It's like I have no idea, you know, the first two years of leading, I never on a multi pitch climb, I never took a whipper. Yeah. So as long as my anchors held which is why you're doing the three points, you know, redundancy, all that sort of stuff. Because um, who knows, one or two of them may be stuck. <laughs> but as long as that's going on, you never know whether your gear yeah. is any good. I've gone whole climbing seasons where I'm climbing like four or five days a week for, you know, six to eight weeks without taking a fall. And right. a lot of that comes from just having a conservative mindset with this stuff. For me, like pushing the grade is not necessarily what I'm there to do. Every once in a while, I get it in me to like, yeah, I'm going to try something a little harder. Mm -hmm. For the most part, though, climbing for me is just more of like this personal expression slash personal exploration. Right. Like being able to do this thing that is objectively dangerous, especially like I try to explain to my mom that just because you have a rope doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. Like, you know, with trad climbing, there's just plenty of normal routes that have like extreme do not fall zones. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I've always just approached it as like this inner journey. And so, you know, pushing the grade, the difficulty is not necessarily what I'm looking for. It's, it's more like, yeah, that personal process. And so, and I hate falling. Like I was right. at Smith a couple months ago and I made myself take practice falls, like just hucking right. myself off the route and none of them felt good. Like even after fall number 20, they could be like, okay, this is okay. I was like, no, I hate this. <laughs> yeah i do too actually and, and and you know back to the old school thing like i always say like i hate i still i have times when i'm i have no problem with falling but if if i don't fall for a long time the old mindset creeps yeah. back in and i get gripped above bolts on steep climbing yeah. you know not like terrified, not like petrified, but it's there. Yeah. And, you know, these folks that are taking, you know, just lobbing off a of steep sport climbs, totally safe. My intellectual mind knows that like it's the perfect place to fall, you know, overhanging 513, take a 30 footer, awesome, more rope out, softer fall, like yeah. all the mechanics work. I'll, I'm still going to be terrified. Yeah. Emotional yeah. and intellect yeah. are two yeah. very different things. And so, but also, I mean, thinking about, if you're if you're mostly track climbing, falling on gear is a is a bigger deal. Um, and secondly, you know if you're climbing in Joshua Tree, like just winging off of a lot of those routes, regardless of of whether you're going to hit the ground, can be you know they're slabby, yeah, hit features. I mean, yeah, it's not yeah, it's not falling in the gym. It, it's not falling, yeah. um, you know, on a steep sweeping overhanging sport climb. So. Yeah. I get it. And I didn't fall for years. Right. You know, for years. Yeah. Although I didn't never took either. I never, uh, it was not in my lexicon to, to take <laughs> either, which is, which is really funny because I, I have this like, I don't know what, I guess I just didn't climb, push myself too hard or, or, you know, I just hung on by the, the skin of my teeth kind of a thing. Yeah. Cause it was illegal to say take. Right. When I, I mean, and it's not even that that it was that era because it, we were past that era. But I always joke that we all climb. Me and my buddies 
like for the first few years of my climbing, climbed like it was like 1976. Totally. Even though it was, must not fall. Yeah, even though it was the 90s, <laughs> yeah. you know, and all this sort of stuff. So I think that's cool, though. I mean, I on the show, you talk a lot about like the golden age of climbing or like the 60s, 70s, Yosemite kind of thing. And, you know, some people might look at that and think it's a tripe or it's old or whatever. But I think it's great. Like, I'm a huge fan of history in general, especially in climbing. Right. And I think... You know, thinking back to what they've done, like I've done a few all passive leads and I'm like, oh my God, this is what it used to be like without cams. This is insane. Uh, and it's cool to have that respect for what they used to do. Uh, and I think for me, it's, you know, climbing is a personal journey. So my ethics are my own alone. I hold myself to a standard that I would hope people like Royal Robbins uh, would look highly upon. I never ask anyone else to do it my way. I think that's a little annoying, but, you know, for, <laughs> for myself, I like to. I like to climb clean. I'd rather on-site 5.7 than Project 5.10. Right. You know, or whatever the numbers might be. Whatever the numbers might be. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I used to joke. I only started leading 10 on gear outside of Indian Creek because we all know that's not really trad climbing. Uh, you started leading 10 on gear maybe about a year and a half ago. Uh, I used to joke, yeah, I flashed 5.9 on my first day. Haven't climbed harder since. Right. <laughs> that's a pretty good philosophy, too. Um how long have you been climbing at this point? Uh, it's been about four and a half years. Okay, it's been about four and a half years. You're guiding now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did my first guide season, uh, 2018, 19. Okay. Did they run you through the AMGA? Yeah. So using that AmeriCorps Education Award money, which I have nothing else to use it on, I got my SPI. Um, and where did that come from? Um, oh, it's when I did trail work. Oh, okay. So got this scholarship money from okay. having busted my butt doing manual labor in the woods with a okay. bunch of other sweaty hippies. Uh, and yeah, didn't have anything conventional to use it on because I didn't right. go to college, nor did I want to. So using it on an SPI, didn't really know if I wanted to get into guiding. I just you know figured it'd be cool and learn some tricks, which I definitely did. But it turns out I have the personality for guiding. And you know it's something that I've really fallen in love with. Like a, facilitating an experience for someone else uh, it gives me a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment, you know, and I think it's cool. Like I've heard you speak about your guiding on the show and I, it sounds like it's something you were really enjoyed as well when you were doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've only done it for a season, so right, I can't right. say that it's like, yeah, I'm going to do this forever. Well, I mean, you know, nothing, almost nothing lasts forever, but, right. um, but yeah, I mean, it, it takes a certain mindset. Um, and, and actually I'll ask you that you're only in your first year. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people see guiding as this outlet to, you know, continue a life in climbing and, um, and what you said, like made my ears perk up of like, Oh, I found out I had the, I had sort of the demeanor or the personality for guiding, mm -hmm. which is really, 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 really the, the important part. Yeah. Um, your technical everybody thinks it has before they get into it or frankly before they meet a lot of guides they think it has like technical ability is like a big part of it um but if you're you know it, you got to have the mindset so can you tell me a little bit about what you believe that to be yeah in, in terms of how you, it reflects in in how you approach guiding yeah i think mostly it's my energy and enthusiasm for wanting to give people a the best experience possible like i want them to think at the end of the day, man, I really could not have had this day of climbing without hiring a guide or maybe even specifically this guy. Right. Because for me, it is more than just the technical skills. Like the, you, you, know, you could teach just about anyone how to build a top rope, but how do you 
get people to engage people when they're a little scared or they're unsure of their own abilities or adding more flavor to the day of talking about the geology and the flora and the fauna and the history of the place and kind of coming up with a plan for the day, always being able to adjust it as you go, of course, but like thinking of like, okay, what do these people want out of the day? What can I give them? What can I show them that they wouldn't have found on their own and they wouldn't have just been able to Google you know, like what cool things to do in Joshua Tree. You know, let's try to give them a little bit more of an insider's view of things. Right. Who are you working for? I work for Stone Adventures mostly. Okay. Uh, I freelanced for just about everyone in Joshua Tree my right. first season until uh, Stone Adventures kind of bumped me up, and that's my main gig now. Who's how many? How many companies are there? Do oh, they geez. do they limit the concessions? No, it's not like Yosemite okay. where it's just the YMS. No, it's um, basically if you have insurance and a cert. Right. So you have an SPI and an insurance policy, you get a permit. And huh. I think there's like probably at least 10 guide services that operate in the town of Joshua Tree. Oh, wow. And then probably another 15 or so that hold <laughs> permits in San Diego and LA and elsewhere. <sighs> That's um, wild. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, I think it's a really interesting place to guide because, you know, it's one of the more popular national parks, 3 million visitors a year now. Parking is pretty limited, uh, crowded on the weekends, of course. Um, the climbing is the worst climbing to take people on if they've never rock climbed before because there's no jugs, there's no holds. It's all, like you said, it's all slabs and cracks. Uh, and you have to navigate working around all these other guides too. Wow. So I think it, and setting up a top rope there is really challenging. There's very few bolted anchors. Right. You know, there's no veg to use, no vegetation. So you're, everything's set back all the way. You got to use like a hundred foot static on some of these things. So yeah, I think. I enjoy rising to that challenge of having to use a lot of these tricks uh, that maybe in other places uh, you wouldn't have to do. Yeah, I mean, I actually I guided there. Oh, Did cool. You know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, Who'd yeah. you work for? I worked for A16. A- Does those heard of stores them. even exist in, in I've LA? I've never heard of A16. Really? I, I don't go to LA, so maybe okay. I don't know. Well, they were, um, it was stores. They okay. were like pre. I mean, they were kind of like a mini REI sort of store. Okay. Um, I don't know if they're a co-op or not, but they felt like it. And yeah, we just, I just like worked out of there, you know, people and and recruiting people in, in LA is where I was. I think they have, had San Diego stuff. And then, yeah, just, I mean, what exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> like classes, which I always enjoyed the classes more than the peer guiding. Yeah. Education um, is really yeah. fun. So we do anchor classes, uh, there and in, in, uh, Takit suicide in the, nice. in the summertime. And, um, and then I, I did a couple few days for Bob Gaines. Uh, yeah, he's still there. Yeah. Vertical ventures. Yeah. yeah. He's still working. Yeah. So, but then at that point, I, th- I want to say that they, there was maybe one other company that was guiding out there. Um, and it was, I mean, super tiny. Yeah. There was probably six or seven people <laughs> like mainly guiding. And then each like Bob would pick up somebody in the busy season right. or whatever kind of a thing. And so it's like everybody knew each other really, really well. And like, and we all sort of had literally like our established, like, that this is zones zone that yeah, A16 yeah. goes to, so I'm not going to. And I knew not to, you know, go and, and like Bogart Bob's right. zones before he got there in the morning because, so I mean, it, like it actually, you talking about how many guiding companies there are, and then also the fact that there's also so many people just yeah. literally made me anxious. It's pretty it's got to be now. like, yeah. Um, just like a sort of roller derby, like who's going to get what climbs. For <laughs> it their can be, you stuff. know, it, it definitely can be. Um, and that's part of why, like for me being a high energy person and morning person, I'll wake up at 5am to go 
pre-rig some climbs when my guests aren't showing up till eight. Right. But I'd rather, you know, take that extra time to give them just the, you know, maybe that's one or two extra routes that they get into the day. Right. Uh, and it just makes the day flow a little better too. Plus you look like such a chump when you wander around and get skunked. Yeah. Like it's the worst. That's my I mean, biggest fear still yeah, is it, like, it's like, I mean, they're, they've hired you to be like the ace that knows more than everybody yeah. else. And like, yeah, because I mean, even back in the day, uh, Lumpy Ridge and, and, and Estes, it always would happen. Like, yeah. you know, just you get up there and they're just throwing their pack down at the base <laughs> of the thing that you wanted to do. And um, yeah, so it's just funny because, uh, yeah, and then you look like a chump and you're just like trying to figure out something else to do. Yeah. Try not to show the fact that you're kind of up the creek. Right. Yeah. You're trying to play it cool. Yeah. It's, it's fun- still my biggest fear. And, you know, it's. The more you do it, the easier it gets because yeah. you start to learn the flow of, of the place right. and where everyone's going to be right, and, right. and you know, For sure. find those little hidden spots that are not in the guidebook and stuff. Yeah, and that's all pretty key. But yeah. um, I can only imagine it's just like I said, like roller derby, like just like <laughs> trying to like a, I imagine like the running of the bulls or something like there's a gate that opens yeah. and everybody just starts like running towards their the well, luckily it's not like red rock I'm doing sail away op- yeah or whatever never guided that route because yeah, there's just, always no, someone on yeah, it totally. that was my second ever rock climb though oh right on. so I'm yeah. like you know they, these guys took me up to I 5-3 or whatever it was my first climb it felt super straightforward like no technique really needed it's just all big holds and then day two they put me on sail away and I'm like What's a crack? Where are the holes? What are you supposed to do? Right. Yeah. How'd you do? I actually did okay. I mean, right. that was like a one fall and then got it on the second try. Right. Um, I think crack climbing is really cool. Like I, I spent time in Indian Creek and you know, most of my climbing has been on granite. So mm-hmm. cracks have been pretty comfy for me. And it's, I love the philosophy of crack climbing because it's like, it's like jazz music. You know, In jazz, they tell you, listen to the notes they're not playing. In right. crack climbing, you know, you're climbing the space between cool. the right. rock. Like right. You're climbing the absence of the rock. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. And it's super secure. And it's like, maybe it's this masochistic side of like putting your hands or your fingers in something and it's kind of painful, but it's like such a good kind of pain. You know, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's uh, tricky to guide. I think oh, because the hardest thing I have to do is teach people how to crack, yeah, I mean, and, crack and slab. Yeah. And we, know? and I do a, a course every two, two times a year. I work for Steph Davis's, um, oh, nice. uh, crack clinic as mm-hmm. sort of an auxiliary guide. And I'm Sweet. very, very strong quotations <laughs> yeah. in the air. Cause I don't want to like make anyone think I'm a guide, you know, she, we're, I'm friends with Steph and I know Indian Creek really well. Yeah. And it's like the easiest guiding gig. Cause we, you know, it's all top roping there and like nice. just slam up some ropes and, and have a good time. But yeah, but teaching people to, to crack climb, especially there, although it's the rough rock and J tree has got to be pretty gnar on folks too. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it's such a counter. It's just a weird thing to teach someone who doesn't either climb a lot or never done it. Like where else I always say this, like where else in the world? do you put your hand into a dark place and try to get it stuck? <laughs> yeah. Like try as hard as you can. Yeah. It's like, you know, reaching up into the, it's like Homer reaching up into the <laughs> into the soda machine. And then like, he can't yeah. get his hand out. Like no one would not like, Oh, I'm just going to wander up. And then, Oh, here's a dark hole in a rock. I'm going to shove my arm in there as far as I can get it. Yeah. Like honestly, like, <laughs> 99.999 of the population would just look at you and go, what the fuck are you talking about? It's, you want me to do yeah, what? It doesn't now? make sense at yeah, first, so. for sure. It's, it's probably the least intuitive style of climbing, yeah. you know? And it's, it's wild, the variance of the people who get it 
first try, you're like, okay, here's how you do it. Here's what you do with your hand. And then boom. And then folks who are like amazing climbers otherwise, just like it, it, it be, it's this mental block. Of yeah, like it's sure. pretty wild. The breadth of you take any given climber who on paper look like the same person up to that point. Yeah. And like some people just get it and other people it's like have to work really hard yeah. to sort of figure it out. And I think I've been lucky that I just got it. Like I said, I've, I don't climb too difficult of routes, but when I do climb, I think I, I do it well. And crack climbing has just kind of made sense. I mean, it's like, I don't know, maybe the people who taught me did a good job as well of just, yeah, it, it clicks in my head, I suppose, you know, but so does I think a lot of climbing, like just the idea of the way you move your body and use your body's momentum at times. It's, it's fascinating, but it also just, it's I'm not the best teacher because a lot of it's just, I'm doing it in the moment and not really realizing what I'm doing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think the mentoring and, and guiding has to be strong. I think mostly on those teaching techniques, mm. like obviously the mentoring and guiding is, is very technical and here's how to do all these things and here's how to do them on an institutional level, which is very different than what I do. And I think most people do yeah. on their own. Yeah. You know, you're, you're much more backed up, much more, oh, yeah. uh, you know, set in, set in stone to use the pun. But, uh, I think that's maybe in a mentorship where I think, some of the stuff gets lost is that, you know, there, there are like great teaching techniques and, and even, even working with Steph, um, who's also not a guide in the pure sense, mm-hmm. uh, seeing some of the things that she's come up with over the years to talk about how to crack climb is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know if you've got that or if you're just like collecting things that work one day and don't work another day for, for teaching techniques. It's a little bit of both. And maybe I shouldn't sell myself short as far as teaching. Cause, uh, I was photographing and hanging out with Lynn Hill. Uh, one of the guide services in Joshua tree cliffhanger guides does the Lynn Hill experience. And while they're not able to hire me for it because of permit situations, I'm friends with Lynn. So I just go and shoot, uh, and hanging out with her and, they do like seminars and talks and le- not lectures, but like, yeah, classes on, on technique. And I'm listening to her teach technique and I'm like, oh my God, I use the exact same teaching style and like word, even phrasing and wording that Lynn uses of like, you know, slab climbing, heels down, butt out, you know, right. you, use your weight this way. And I'm like, wow, maybe I do know a little bit more about this than I thought. Right. <laughs> right. That, yeah. And it's, that's cool that they bring, uh, Lynn out there. I mean, that's her old stomping ground. It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's so cool to hang out. You know, like I, I first met her at the Jim Bridwell Memorial a little over a year ago in the Valley, which I kind of got invited into, which I mean, I had been to Yosemite once with my dad in 2011. We did a road trip, but I was not a climber. So my introduction to Yosemite as a climber is meeting Werner Braun, Lynn Hill, Dave Yarian, all these folks that, you know, are legends. Right. And I, as a fan of the climbing history, that was mind blowing to me. Let me ask you another ty- type of questioning as this, I get a lot of questions to me about like how to get the door opened in the community. Um, you know, whether it's in a gym or, or just, you know, like you were in Jersey, like isolated yeah. in a place where there's, you know, there is actually, there's kind of nowhere left that doesn't, I think have, well, let me say that there's less, a lot less places left that don't have a, at least some weird local gym oriented yeah. climbing community. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 
somewhere in the swamp and <laughs> outside of Baton Rouge or whatever. But, um, but still, it can like seem really clicky, clicky and mm-hmm. insular. Um, but you seem to have found some sort of formula to like just <laughs> bypass that to where you, you know, like Hobo Greg is this again. It's kind of this legend. You know, here I am talking to you, and I'm sure there's <laughs> there's some slightly different version of it that exists online or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you're in the four years. It sounds like you're a little Forrest Gumpy, and that you yeah. like appeared in all these places. Oh yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about like what you think allows you to do that. And maybe if you were to give advice, because I actually can't, I can give some advice about it, but I've been in like the, I've been in my own click mm-hmm. by choice and by design um, for so long that I've missed this whole gym thing or this whole like walking into the, what is what much more mayhem than it yeah. used to be. I mean, be, I, so. I've climbed in a gym twice. Okay. So I have no right. experience. But there. what about this idea but, of like entering into this community? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, I think for me, I, I've always had this personality that's outgoing to a degree. I mean, I, when I used to go to concerts, I wore a pizza costume. Okay. I was pizza man. Okay. Before I was hobo Greg. And so I think, <laughs> Pre-internet or pre-social media? Uh, <laughs> for me, it was pre-social media. Can we media. find some pizza, man? There might be there. some right, stuff. Anyway, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure about that. That's a good one. But yeah, just having that attitude of, you know, I'm going to make myself look as ridiculous as possible so no one else has to be self-conscious. Like, let's all have a great time. Let's mm-hmm. dance. Let's climb. Whatever we're doing. Um, and I think entering with that attitude made it really easy. It's... I, I don't know. Like, the, the climbers I've met in the, the quote, dirtbag world have really just been great people. You know, they've been very open and welcoming if you have that attitude. Like if you if you just match what they're bringing to the table, if you have that adventurous spirit and if you have that outgoing attitude and you're you're a positive person, I think it's going to work out for you. So, yeah, like advice to people for how to find that. I think a lot of it comes down to having time because if you only spend a weekend in a place, it's going to be a lot harder. You know, the dirtbag world moves on a much slower rhythm, right. which has its pluses and minuses. You yeah. know, sometimes the minus can be nobody's climbing until noon, and, yeah. you know, and it's just too much hanging out. <laughs> uh, I think where I'm at, yeah, where I'm at now is kind of a nice balance, like yeah. having a job and, and dedicating myself to that craft of guiding. Um, I don't really climb as much for myself during those eight months that I'm working, uh, but then I have the whole summer off to go travel and express my love of climbing, you know, and yeah, finding that community wherever you go. I think you start to, you, you pick up the pattern, you know, go hang out at the parking lot when everyone's wrapping up at the end of the day and drink a couple beers with people and right. just kind of, if you can make friends in any other social circle, you'll have no problem in the climbing world, you know? So maybe that's what it comes down to is just having that personality that you know does, if, if you're by yourself like a lot of us are just like one dude in a van i do have my girlfriend with me on the road for the summer but she doesn't climb so that's kind of its own thing but yeah just being one guy or one girl in a van um just have the attitude of like you know you're traveling go meet people go talk to people you know if you have a smile on your face and you're nice no one's going to tell you to get the hell out of here it's funny you say that uh, you found some of the climbing world to be clicky. I don't know. It's been a different experience for me, I guess. Maybe it's clicky and I don't notice it because I'm part of it. No, I'm projecting. Yeah. <laughs> Total, no, I, I really am. Like, I really do reflect on that. And I'm like, you know, I have my sort of s- s- attitudes and, and my own kind of baggage, I guess, uh, that I bring about climbing. And, and that's generally speaking, up until I started doing the Enormacast, you know, that's really 
the limiting thing, I think. Again, reflecting. And what you just said about like dipping in for a weekend versus like having the time to kind of do that rhythm thing is I think I'd never really thought of it that way. So it's sort of an insight that people need to think about is that, you know, if you're dipping into the weekend, the weekenders have a plan. Yeah. You know, they, they've, they've got their roots picked out and they, they definitely aren't going to be as open to just some wingnut extra person yeah, for coming sure. with them. And it can feel like it's a bad attitude, but it's also an attitude you have to respect because yeah. you get in that mode sometimes too. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're marching in to do a climb that you've talked about all week and you're geared up for it and everything else, the last thing you need is honestly some a random hobo guy. Greg, yeah, like, some hobo. like <laughs> heading you off at the trailhead and yeah. wondering where you're going and if you want him to go climbing with you. And you have to respect that. Absolutely. You know? So, you could walk away from that encounter where someone's like, yeah, we're, we're going to do the whatever, the Enorma Dome or whatever. <laughs> the, as like, oh, those guys were assholes. Or, but no, you got to respect the fact that, yeah, they're on a program yeah. and, and you wouldn't suddenly want somebody in there either. So really that's a good piece of advice of like know the rhythm, know where it is you can kind of like reasonably – expect someone to be like yeah sure you know and what you were saying about like the parking lot afterwards like the kind of evening like let's go fuck around type of climbing is where you're gonna get somebody's like yeah cool we're gonna do this like have a good you know that's where you meet people to go out or he he wants to go do this and i don't even want to but i'm going to belay him so come with us you know versus the like morning we're all gearing up to get our, our objective. Yeah, you have an objective. For the day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. And I, I'm an objective-based climber. Like, I, I remember when you had um, Mark Hudon, and I'm blanking on his partner's name. Uh, me too. Yeah. No. Sorry, whoever Mark Hudon's partner was at the time. Uh, back, Max Jones. Uh, I think oh, you're was. talking about Max. You're not yeah. talking about Not Jordan. Jordan no, okay. that was a great episode, no, I, too. I didn't remember Jordan. That I was just, awesome I was just dissing him. Yeah. <laughs> No, it was uh, Mark and uh, yeah, Mark and Mark Max. Max yeah. um, they spoke of how like they showed up in the valley and they had like a list of like right. these are the things we want to do. And I'm the same way, you know. I, I'm I'm only inspired by what I'm inspired by, for right. better or for right. worse. I'm not the most well-rounded climber. Like awful with, like when I see OW on the topo, that means other way. Oh, you know, <laughs> very good. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, so I, I get what it's like to have an objective and then to navigate trying not to offend someone if they want to be. You know, they don't have a partner for the day or whatever right, it is. Right, right. But I think it's just like anything else. You need more time. You know, we live in a world where everything is so rushed, but climbing is a beautiful way to slow it down. Right. And so going back to kind of your original decamping from the East Coast yeah. and that whole scene, you know, is there anything at all that you left behind that that you have any sort of um, kind of besides the pizza and the bagels? No, that's no, it. That's I mean, it. Sorry, mom. I don't, you know, I don't come to see you more. But yeah, it's 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 hard when there's just there's you know if the Midwest didn't exist, like maybe if the Rockies and the Appalachians just mm-hmm. touched each other, it'd be easier to get back there. But you right. got this whole blank spot in the middle, right, right. and yeah, it, it's just it's a lot, attitude of a lot of the people as well. Like I grew up with people who would want to fight at the drop of a hat, right? You know, uh, and it's just a very aggressive part of the world, the Northeast, and 
that's not my style. Like I'm, I'm aggressive for a Californian now. Like I don't really fit in necessarily. Um, but <laughs> they're like, settle down. Yeah. New York. Like, guy. Oh, I'm like, I'm stuck in between these two worlds. Right, you know? I'm right. way too chill for New York and not chill enough for the West coast. Right. <laughs> that's awesome. So back, back to the, um, you know, I keep asking you sort of for advice and it's, it's maybe inappropriate in the fact that you, you don't have a ton of experience. I mean, four and a half years climbing. Yeah, it's not that much. But at the same time, I think you have this perspective on it that's immediate um, to where, you know, uh, uh, honestly, like a Max Jones telling you like how to get it done is, you know, with all due respect to Max, but the times have changed. Yeah. So that uh, that other piece of advice that I'm asked for a ton, which I, I, I really have a hard time with is that like I live in. You know, I can think of some folks in Houston and here's, we got to get out of here. Like, how do we do that? And to be honest with you, my escape from the Midwest was going to college, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and going to that like privilege thing, which I think dirtbagging gets harped on all the time now, (laughs) like fully my parents, my dad was like, I'll pay for college anywhere you can get in, anywhere you want to go. Now, obviously he was hoping that I wouldn't go, you know, to some like, $100,000 $100,000 private school yeah. or whatever, which he also, you know, based on my report card was pretty safe <laughs> bet that I, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I got a C student here. I should, you know, it's going to be state Wherever school. Wherever you want to yeah, go, yeah. kid. <laughs> I mean, but out of state versus in state's a big difference. Yeah. So, you know, that was my ticket. And I understand that not, you know, a very small percentage of the population has that mm. specific ticket where I went to college and I didn't even work. Um, at least the first couple of years. So, uh, that was my escape. It's, it's a daunting challenge. What would your, I mean, aside from like the cliche, you just got to grab life yeah. and go for it. Like, you know, sometimes cliches exist for a reason though. Yeah. Like, um, I'm, I'm happy that I got into this life and climbing before my dad died. Cause he wasn't rich. He was a blue collar phone worker, but there was some life insurance money. Mm-hmm. So I had some time after he died to just go full on into this okay. dirtbag life. But, you know, before that and then now I'm, I'm earning it my own way. And I think, you know, climbers are pretty scrappy. You don't need a whole lot to live off of. You make 12 or 15 grand a year and you're living like a king or a queen. So I think, yeah, maybe that cliche is appropriate that just go and figure it out as you're doing it. Because if you wait for the moment to be perfect, you're never going to leave. Right. It's never going to be perfect. You just have to kind of weigh your priorities in life. Like if you like security and comfort and having uh, an established group of friends all the time, maybe it's not the best option for you. But if you're a little more adventurous and you're a little less tied down, a little more loose, uh, at least going for it and see what happens. I mean, you, you can always fall back on a job, especially if you have a college degree. It seems like that's a little easier to, to, to get a, a decent job and not right. just be digging ditches. But, you know... I don't know. I, I've been some of the happiest moments of my life have been doing manual labor jobs that I've just saving up for some cool trip. You know, it's sometimes it's the reality. You know, we're not all the, the sponsored athlete or the Instagram influencer. So just kind of piecing it together however you can. You know, I think it's it's worth it going for it. Well, I mean, you 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 hit on something there too about the manual labor because that's I mean, honestly, so many great climbers over the years pre-sponsored climbership it was it was you know carpentry and roofing and banging nails as we say whether they're going in a roof or a wall or what you know in in the manual labor thing and i do it i I still do it um 
there it's like it's a drag when there's no end to it yeah or when there's no goal um in the times that i've really not you know i felt like trapped in house painting which is what i've been doing for the last few years is that like and and that's just part of life where you're just like banging it out for mm-hmm. no particular reason. It was the most fun when I first started it where I was doing what you did. Like I'd work for a season, then I'd go yeah. do something. That doesn't doesn't exist anymore. But it's like I don't know, there there's also this um this thing you said about the comfort or about security that and I think that's really the daunting thing is that what if it runs out? What if I'm somewhere yeah. and I have nothing? But I've honestly, I've never met a person who made the choice and even got to that point that didn't find a way out of it. Yeah. And, and looking back on it, A, it, was, it seemed way worse than it was at the time. And B, they almost look back on it as like that was the moment where like my sh- attitude shifted and I became like a different person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Andrew and I have talked about dirtbagging on the show in depth. Yeah. And that, and he that was the thing you have to be miserable as part of the dirtbag experience. Well, his point being is that like you, you literally, again, these we're traveling in cliches, but you literally begin to appreciate, okay, this is what I have. This is, and also appreciate, this is what the community does for me yeah. because that's, I think a big part of it is that you're not going to starve to death and end up in a yeah. ditch in Joshua tree. Yeah. You're just not. It's it's gonna get taken care of. Yeah, we're lucky you know? to live in you know a pretty wasteful country, so we can live off of that waste and right. all the dumpster diving <laughs> right. and you know leftover foods and stuff. Yeah, like you said, you're never gonna starve. Most likely, you might be malnourished from too much ramen or something like that. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah, I think having the community is a big deal because if you were just trying to do this by yourself, like if you just lived in isolation somewhere in a right. van, that right. would probably be pretty tough. But Having other people to, you know, maybe someone knows where you can find some work. Oh, oh t- yeah. And that, and that's I work really on this like, pot farm. Come along. Totally. And that's the thing I was just thinking about in terms of the community. Like, if you're, if you're a good person and you're obviously... The cool thing about, like, the climbing and the dirtbagging thing is you obviously have some level of this weird, twisted work ethic. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Work like, as little as possible. But... but, but <laughs> Your life is this kind of like you're willing to go out and 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 suffer yeah. if you're a rock oh, yeah. climber. Um, you're willing to go out and put yourself in scary situations. I mean, you have this character, and and I'll go to the mat to say that that's not a hundred percent true, but a large percentage of climbers have this built-in character. It's what yeah. drew them to climbing. Yeah, and so I think anybody who's looking for someone to do any sort of job knows that they can they can pluck a climber and get some level of dedication now will they leave in two months when they're you know and and but i think a lot of times if you're honest about that that's fine you yeah know? and and i've known so many climbers that have restaurants and construction companies and you know whatever it happens to be now pot farms you know in the past pot farms too but now really pot now farms. you can talk about it yeah, yeah. and and that's what they do. They just like, they see, yo, you need some money. Let's, I got two months of work for you. Can yeah. you show up tomorrow? And if you can show up tomorrow and work your ass off for those two months, which you can, because you know, there's this like trip. Yeah. I think like you said, yeah. having that goal at the end, like I worked um, before and then during my dad's death, I uh, saving up for those trips. I worked at a petting zoo. Oh my god! Yeah, and it was Dude. it was cool. I mean, I got to take care of equine and bovines. I'm like, oh, you know, mostly bovines just, rule. Oh. 
I don't mind picking up horse shit, but picking up cow shit is like wet concrete. Who doesn't love the bow? Yeah. <laughs> but I was working 10 hours a day, seven days a week. For right. t- I think in two months, I had two days off. Right. You know, but having that yeah. trip lined up at the end yeah. makes it tolerable. Like, you know, you're daydreaming about it while you're working and, you know, you're, you're getting through those days because you know that there's this glorious experience waiting for you on the other side, whatever yeah. the experience turns out to be. Right. Well, and it becomes, it's like, uh, I don't want to dismiss, you know, because I get, I, I get stuff from folks who have families, you know, and you know, we've got a kid and if you have a kid, it's yeah. hard. It's yeah. Just, and it's like, yeah. you need some level of security. Yeah. Um, and, and, but there's no set path. Like that's the one I haven't been able to like, oh yeah, here's how it's done. Yeah. It's still just like, you know, you got to kind of travel to a place, maybe keep, keep your, keep your sort of your ties alive and then find out what it's going to be like, because you can get a feel for a bend Oregon or a, or a, or a Joshua tree by being there for a couple, even a couple weeks, Mm -hmm. you know? So, but yeah, it's a tricky thing. And I just kind of, you know, wanted to kind of ask you that question, uh, because people are are looking for a set answer, and I almost knew that you didn't have one, so I sort of put you yeah. on the spot. I, no, no, it's cool. I, and I never thought of it from that perspective of you know that there isn't a set answer because I'm just doing what works for me, and everyone's a, everyone has a different experience where they're coming from, and so it's going to be a different path to get to where they want to go. Um, I th- I think the main thing is to recognize that, especially when you're young. You know, I'm 32. It's like right in the middle of these awesome years from, let's say, like 20 to 50. That, you know, <laughs> no offense. No offense. No, no, no. I Maybe love 60. No, actually, no, I fucking, I love the fact that you gave it that much, actually. That's, yeah. that's you know, that's a huge chunk of time. You can even I thought you were going to say like 20 to 30. No, or 20 no, no, no. Yeah, no, that's awesome. We'll, we'll go 20 to 60. Yeah, Jesus, where your, right. your, your body is capable of right. doing what your mind wants it to do. <laughs> you have awesome. that freedom. You know, like I don't have any kids. I don't have any student right. loans. Right. Um, it's easy for me. Yeah. It might be harder for someone else, but yeah, it's, it's all, I think it all comes down to priorities. Like what do you want to get out of this life? Right. If you want a nine to five and a house and a family, that's great. I have nothing against that for me. That's just not right. where I want to go with this. Right. You know? Well, it's interesting that you're it, the reason I laughed again, it was because you, you actually were so generous. Yeah. Um, well, and you said, how old are you? I'm 32. Okay. So you were late twenties when this whole, I started climbing at 28, which yeah, yeah, it's pretty late for a lot of people. Yeah. And that, and that's just the thing. And when you said, talk about like, like you have this window, like you really, I mean, the, the window really is your twenties, I think. And, and later on it can be done. And, and I get emails and like I said, I talk to people all the time Mm -hmm. that like they get into it later in life. But if you want to be the road dog guy that's in Joshua tree on a Wednesday evening, yeah. hanging out, wondering if you're even going to climb that day, <laughs> you know, get it done early. Yeah. You know, and then you can have all that other stuff later. Yeah. And that's my, that's my yeah. philosophy anyways. I like, you know, I'm retired now. I, I've never the gotten pre, the idea the of the idea of, you know, go to college, get a job, work that job until you're 65 and then retire when it's, too late to do a lot of things, not everything, but it's too late to do a lot of these physical sort mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. It's just never made sense to me, you know, and I've been lucky in a lot of different ways to, to wind up where I am. Right, some of it's right. dedication and, and motivation to get there, but some of it's also luck right. as well. Yeah. Well, when you're, you're 50 and you're looking at your, those social security things, they yeah. send you every, and there's like nothing in there cause you never paid <laughs> right. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. um, yeah. But th- there's, there's, you know, there's, 
give and take. So yeah, for sure. I mean, you never, you're, you're probably never going to have everything in life. And so I'm, I think I'm old enough to recognize I'm not, you know, youthful naivet about my life and I, I see where it's going and I'm happy. Like I'm incredible. I feel incredibly happy and incredibly fulfilled doing this thing. I mean, whether it's, you know, drinking beers in the space station with your friends or climbing some weird, obscure Alpine sort of thing. Um, whatever it is, it just makes me feel like I'm, you know, accomplishing something in my life. Like I grew up in New York city and here I am living mostly in California, climbing mountains. Like it just doesn't make sense to me sometimes. Like I should be some spiky hair Guido <laughs> based on what everyone else I grew up. Right. The, 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 the trajectory was yeah. there. The path was clear. Yeah. A lot of hair gel um, <laughs> involved. So imagine the money you're saving on that yeah. on, on hair products. <laughs> Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm glad we got this yeah, done. Thanks for having me on. I'm not really here to plug anything, but if folks want to go to hobogreg.com, especially if you're getting married, uh, especially if you're a climber who's getting married, uh, that's kind of the niche I'm trying to carve out for myself is doing more more climbing weddings and more oh, just cool. alternative weddings and right. stuff. With the photography. So, yeah, I think it'd be cool to get more into that a little bit. Do you, do you uh, produce uh, writing on there or anything? There is some writing. In fact, we have a mutual friend, Luke Mahal. All right. Uh, and I'm featured in some of the... I'm trying to remember what volume of the climbing zine, but there's a couple of articles in there. Right. And of course, featured in National Geographic, if you go to the October 2016 issue... You'll see a portrait of... They didn't put Hobo Greg. I was kind of bummed. They put my full legal name on it. But yeah, like when you said the legend of Hobo Greg, I was kind of laughing because it's it's kind of gotten out of control at times. Like like my first time climbing in the Northeast, uh, White Horse Ledge in um, New Hampshire, show up racking up in the parking lot. There's like two cars there. Another car pulls in. This guy gets out. Hey, is that Hobo Greg? Like, whoa. Like, it's all the way from Joshua Tree here right at me. So, it just kind of happens that way. Right. And yeah, it's been really cool to be here. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing for climbing, giving people this sort of insider's view into things. Uh, and, you know, you're asking questions that a climber would ask. It's not like watching Honold on 60 Minutes of like, don't you get scared? Let me touch your hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was funny. But yeah, I think it's cool what you're doing. So thanks for having me on sort of a, the mid-level character, you know? Yeah, right on. Thanks for coming. And I, I have touched uh, Alex. <laughs> All right, folks. How about Greg? Storming into Carbondale, demanding to be heard. It turned out to be a lot of fun, and once again, the lesson learned that, you know, I should just give folks a chance. Don't have preconceived notions about what a dirtbag is, about how people get after it, all those sorts of things. So, thanks, Hobo Greg, for opening my eyes once again after all these years. And listen, if you've done a similar thing, a campaign to come on the show or... uh Send me emails, any anything like that. You know what? Speaking of Joseph Campbell, emails, the Norman Cast emails are the are the belly of the whale, are my lowest point on the hero journey. I get so behind, they just disappear into the list. You all know this. You you you've all got those little numbers attached to your email file that says like five hundred or something unanswered emails. I'm the same way. So listen, if you send me an email about anything, actually and you did not get any sort of reply, and, and I, I mean, I leave money on the table. I'll be honest with you. 
if it's important to you, email me back again. It has nothing to do with how I felt about your email. It has nothing to do with anything, but it just overwhelms me. All right? So yeah, re-email. Email me again. Demand to be heard. I will get back to you eventually, someday. Or just come to Carbondale. Bang on my door. If you don't know where I live, just ask around. Seriously, I've been here 19 years. You're going to run into somebody that knows me. All right. Have a good time out there. It's fall here in the U.S. of A., and it's absolutely gorgeous out unless you live in Montana where it dumps like three feet or whatever. But I'm sure the ice climbers are probably already at it. So be careful out there. And of course, remember to check your knots. Unlike the classical heroes, we're not going on our journey to save the world, but to save ourselves. And in doing that, you save the world. I mean, you do. The influence of a vital person vitalizes. There's no doubt about it. The world is a wasteland. People have the notion of saving the world by shifting it around and changing the rules and so forth. And no, any world is a living world if it's alive. And the thing is to bring it to life. And the way to bring it to life is to find in your own case where your life is and be alive yourself, it seems to me.